Audra. And I'm Sadie. And we are former English lit majors and sisters who miss reading and discussing literature with fellow lit nerds. And we created this podcast to discuss literature fueled by libations. So pick your poison and join us each week to discuss all the queries and views unearthed in great books. And support your local bookstore. Hi, Sadie. Hi, Audra. Welcome, everybody, to Lit and Libation. We're so excited for this episode, although I'm excited for all of them. So, But um, <laughs> really looking forward to talking about this novel, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold by John Le Carre. Um, so, Sadie, I really liked last time we did some little get to know you and your reading questions. So let's do it again. Okay. All right. The first question is, what was the last bad book that you read? Okay. Do you want to go first or, or I guess I should uh, go first? So I, go I actually, first. I haven't finished it yet and I don't know if I'm going to. I kind of decided Ooh. to stop today, which I don't really do that that often. I kind of, I'll stick it out for the most part. Yeah. Um, so it's called The Heart's Invisible Furies by John Boyne. And it actually got like a National Book Award or something, I think. But I, I don't like it. And it's oh, no. about... It spans like this long time period about this man named Cyril in in Ireland and he's gay and it starts in like the he's given up for adoption um, and it, it goes through like the 70s and the 80s like he's an adult in the 80s so during the AIDS crisis and he eventually moves to New York it's this long like epic of his life mm-hmm. and it just there's just I don't know it almost comes off as a little soap opera melodramatic to me like there's just a tinge to that to it like like did you ever read the world according to Garp no okay love that book and it kind of goes through and that's a great movie with Robin Williams too but like it goes through someone's lifespan there's lots of novels I think that are great like that and kind of gives this whole span of their life and all the like drama of lives but it doesn't come off as like melodramatic or like yeah and this one just has that tinge of like soap opera ish thing to me I don't know it's kind of the dialogue it's kind of just like one thing after another and like how the stories are wrapped up or not wrapped up and I just I I stopped I started a chapter today and I could like I know exactly where this is going and I skimmed and it's exactly where I thought it was going and I was like "Eh." and I just like shut it and I don't know if I'm gonna pick it up again and I'm almost to the end of it but I just I don't know if I can do it I don't and it's long it's like this long opus yeah I just I'm like I got other stuff I want to read like I picked up a new Isabel Ferrante novel and like I just want to move on (laughs) can't blame me there (laughs) yeah what about you um so I know it's not considered a bad book by most people but I really struggled with it for some reason and it was Good Omens by Neil Gaiman and oh yeah, I, ha- I, I haven't read that. I like Neil Gaiman. I, I do liked, too. I do too. It yeah. makes no sense why I didn't like That's it. Too bad. And I loved the series, like the the Amazon series that they did. Mm-hmm. I thought that was great. But there was just, I don't know. It it almost like. Do you ever feel like sometimes authors are like really almost like self-congratulatory in their writing where like they just like think they're so clever but it's really like not Mm. that clever yes I don't know I think that's how I feel about it like I think because it's very like sacrilegious in a lot of ways I think he thinks he's being very clever in that but I think Mm. it's like some of the jokes and stuff I think are ones that 
you know, like 14 year olds too, are already making yeah, while too obvious. Going to seminary class. Yeah. 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 It's just obvious. Yeah, yeah. I get I get that. I think there's a fine line between being subversive and just like parroting something. Yeah. 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 Mm, that's too bad. Okay. Well, good to know because I do normally like him and maybe I would have picked that up at one point. So I probably yeah. won't now. That's good. <laughs> Save me from a bad book. Good. <laughs> okay. Next question. Um, what book or which book was ruined by its movie adaptations? You just hated the film adaptation and just kind of sullied the story for you. Well, I didn't really hate the film adaptations and this is probably an unpopular, this is weird to say because I also really enjoyed the movies, but honestly, I don't think that the Harry Potter movies did what I wanted them to for the novels. Like I think they, and I, I, the common thing is, oh, it leaves out and it has to leave out. It's a totally different medium. But I didn't necessarily like what was picked to be left out. Like in the last part of the books where Hermione has this whole like thing for the the house elves, yeah. you know, spew. Like I think that's like a really interesting part of the series. And it kind of bums me out that that wasn't in there. So there were just some things that I thought like didn't come yeah. represented well. And I'm not alone in this. I know there's like probably a zillion like Reddit threads about this, about why people hated the movies, like who loved the books. But I do think it was a little disappointing. And like, I'm making yeah. sure we're, I'm reading with Callan, my son, the books. Cause mm-hmm. he's seen all the movies except for the last two. But like, I want him to get the books too. Yes. Cause I think they're so much better. So yeah, well, yeah, es- that's, especially, that's mine. especially with Hermione, right? Because that's such a huge part of her character is like she's an activist and they're all, mm-hmm. you know, they're all in- involved in this like revolution of sorts. But, you know, she she really takes on like these additional things. And, it, you know, I think it's a good perspective of like the student activist and stuff. And it's a huge part of her character development and who she is. Yeah. And it, yeah. they did just like totally skim over it and didn't really develop her character much further past like Goblet of Fire, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I also I had a problem with the the Dumbledore that they went with after. Yeah, uh, I mean, like and I the love, last one. I love that actor, but yeah. I feel like there was too. I think it should have either started that way that he was represented or. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think there were just such two different representations and it was a little muddling my for problem, the character with the book. Yeah. My problem is that he didn't read the books. He had no desire to read the books and he was basing his character completely on the script. And I think that because of that, he missed a lot of like the finer points of why we love Dumbledore, mm-hmm. even with all of his flaws, which I think the... Oh, I can't remember that. Richard Harris does really yeah. well of like showing more of like the gentleness to him. Mm-hmm. I think the classic thing that people always reference is when he asks Harry, did he put his name in the Goblet of Fire? Which right. the book I've is like so many memes about that. Yeah. He quietly and calmly asks Harry, did he put the name in the Goblet of Fire? And then in the movies, he's like throwing Harry across the room <laughs> and screaming in his face. Yeah the classic no I agree with you well good I'm glad I'm not alone that's that's probably mine though what about you mine's also a fantasy novel I really loved the inheritance cycle um like Aragon it's a young adult fantasy novel and series it's like a four book series and I loved it and I was obsessed with it when I was growing up and then 
a movie came out. I think it was like 2007 or 2008. And it was so, so bad that I Ooh. haven't even been able to revisit the books because mm-hmm. it tainted my like the way that I imagined the characters so badly. It was That's awful. disappointing. It was, it was really bad. They should really revisit that one because there's a lot of uh, potential in another movie adaptation for it. Um, okay, the next question is, what is one book you think should be required reading in schools? So I have so many that mm-hmm. I think, and <clears throat> um, but we were recently just talking, so we have already decided we'll announce the book we're reading next and one of the books that we're going to read after that or our next choice is actually a graphic novel and I think graphic novels are really important and there's a graphic novel that I read in high school um, by Art Spiegelman Mouse One and Mouse Two and it's just about the Holocaust and mm-hmm. World War Two and his family's experiences with it but it's super super it just it struck me and like that's some book that I've was really important to me and then I've recommended it to other people since then and I think it's just I mean it's not like we don't learn about the Holocaust already but I think it's a great way for people to pay attention to something and sometimes it's hard for kids to want to read but Mm -hmm. graphic novels I think are a great like way to maybe capture the attention of people who don't think they like to read and so I think it's important to have other iterations of literature you know not just stick with the classics but like really try and grab other people. And I think that looking at different mediums is a great way to do that. And so I would think something like that should be required, not even necessarily just about the content, but the, which is great, but the format and like that it's okay. You know, you're not, it's not a lower form of art because it's a graphic novel, you know? And I think that you miss out on so many things thinking this, you're being told this is what makes good literature, you know, and that's such a pigeonhole because we know who puts out, you know, there's a lot more to what's put out there and what's published than just if it's good or not. So I think it's good to have other people experience that other forms. So that's why I, I would say something like that. That's awesome. Um, one that I was thinking of, I kind of have a lot as well, and I'm tossing between two right now as far as what to say. But with that kind of like inspiration of how an author can kind of like take different formats or styles and like be really creative even outside of just the story that they're telling and like the way that they're telling it. I would choose Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. Mm. I think that book, I mean, it's, did you read it? Yes. It was really stunning. I I loved it. Um, and I love George Saunders and I think the book does a really good job of exploring like just really human themes that I think are pretty universal of just like empathy. And then also he gives voice to so many different kinds of people and different characters Mm -hmm. that I think just talking about the fact that there are 140 characters in the book and how to manage that and forcing people to get inside of all these different heads in one format, I think is really interesting. And then also just trying to figure out like how can we even define this? Like, is this a novel? Is this like a play? Because the format is so different. It's so weird. Right. And right. I think that would be a really fun thing to explore in a classroom. Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good idea. Can I tell you a fun George Saunders story? Of course. This is lit in libation, okay. so all right. it's so, all fair game. So I took a contemporary lit class my last year or second to last year of college. And 
we were reading George Saunders, and it was the same year that Lincoln and the Bardell came out, so we decided to end the semester by reading the new book because we read his short stories prior to the prior in the semester. And anyway, I had read it, and I was really moved, and so I decided on, on just a whim to send him an email to his EDU address at Syracuse, and he responded. <gasps> no, twice. that's awesome. Oh, so my gosh. I had I geeked out so hard. I told him how much it meant to me, how much I loved it, and then I was taking a class on the Civil War at the same time. So I asked him what books he was inspired by, and there was one book that I was reading for my Civil War class that was about death in the Civil War mm-hmm. and how our culture of death is really like derives from that period of history. And he had read it, and <gasps> he did use it as research for the book, and I oh felt gosh. like a genius. And he told me that my email meant a lot to him. <gasps> Sadie, that's just beautiful. Isn't that an incredible story? So anyway, if you are extremely moved by a book and your favorite author is a teacher somewhere. Which most of them are. Which most of them are. Shoot them an email. You never know. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. That's so cool. I'm really jealous. That's awesome. It was awesome. Very cool. That's not a funny story. That's an amazing story. It's an amazing story. Yeah, Yeah. That's a really good story. Wow. Okay. Well, wait a set the tone all right (laughs) um okay so was that our last question yeah that was it um so what are you drinking I just you took a drink and I saw it looks very pretty thank you um Brian made me a bramble with some mint sprigs as a garnish so it's like a I think there's vodka and gin in here and then Mm -hmm. it's muddled with a bunch of different kinds of berries, raspberries and blackberries and everything. It's really nice. Nice to have your mixologist available. I know. It's nice. I really missed him the last couple of weeks. Although, you know, you you really filled in nicely for the last. Thank you. I I did my best, but it is always nice to have someone make something for you. It's true. Um, Well, I am drinking. It's a strawberry lambic beer. So it's oh, from Belgium. I so love I figured those. that was somewhat fit. I know. So it's Lindman's and it's strawberry. Um, peach is my favorite. And I usually like to cut it with a like Hefeweizen of some kind. But I didn't have any on hand. But I am drinking it out of my German beer stein. Oh we my have gosh. many of them because my family and I lived in Germany for a few years when I was young. Um, so we have a lot of beer steins. And so I thought that was very fitting for um, our, our novel. It is very fitting Since some for of it this takes novel. place. While there was East and West, but while they're, you know, in Germany. And so, yeah, so that was my, that worked out well. And we have a lot of those uh, Lambic beers on hand. Really like those. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, Okay. So before we get going, why don't you tell everyone what our next book is going to be? So we have part one right here and now that you're all listening to. And then uh, part two will be next week. And we're also going to be discussing as well as the um, so we're discussing chapters one through 10 in this episode. And the next episode is chapters, um, starting with chapter 11. And then we're also going to think, talk about the movie that came out in 1965. So there was a movie of the spy who came in from the cold. So we're going to, neither one of us have seen that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to give that a, a watch. It's with Richard Burton. Um, and we'll talk about that as well. So if you get a chance, at least watch the movie before the next episode <laughs> and you can listen in. Um, but why don't you tell everyone what our book after that will be? And then um, we planned way ahead and we have our next two. So Sadie, take it away. Okay. Awesome. 
So the next book that I selected is called Nightwood, and it's by Juna Barnes. It was published in 1936, and it was first published by Faber and Faber, and it is one of the early prominent novels to portray explicit homosexuality between women, and as such can be considered lesbian literature. So apparently it's just a really crazy, weird, wild, modernist ride. And is like a hallmark of lesbian lit. And I have to say, I, I'm not well-versed in lesbian literature. So I'm excited to really dive into this one. Apparently, it's it's very weird, which I'm excited to read something a little strange. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Well, after that, and we'll put this up on our Instagram as well. Um, after that, I thought we would do, it's called Persepolis. And it's actually two books. So pick up the version. You can find it at your local bookstore or if you have to, Amazon, I guess. But <laughs> you can you can find it. Um, and it's books one and two, Persepolis and Persepolis 2. Um, and they're graphic novels by Marjane Stratrapi. Um, it's about her childhood and then her early years, um, early adult years uh, when she was living in Iran and Austria during and after the Islamic Revolution. Um, and it's actually been, it's on the top 10 most challenged books in 2014. Apparently a lot of people did not want it in taught in classrooms. Wow. So this is one that should be, but a lot of people didn't want it to, um, what they considered to be, um, maybe just due to some of the graphic language and images, they considered it too controversial, um, which just makes me love it even more. Yep. So, <laughs> um, so I read Persepolis one, but not Persepolis two, um, so I thought we would do that. So we'll put all those up on our Instagram as well so that you can get ahead of the game and go pick up some copies and read along with us. Sweet. Um, let's see. So those are our next books. I think is there anything else we need to announce before we get into it? I don't think so. One note is it might be a little bit more difficult to get your hands on Nightwood. Um, I went to my local bookstore and they did not have it on stock, so I had to order online. But I'm sure you could always try like bookshop.org. Bookshop.org has it. That's where I got mine. Oh, perfect. Awesome. Yep. Yep. And that's definitely a great way to go. There's a bunch of different websites you can go to. Just do a little searching past that first Amazon ad that'll pop up. Yeah. And you can definitely find a copy. So definitely encourage that. Um, Okay. Well, let's get going. Um, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold by Jean Lacar. So this book was published... um, it's had a couple different republishings, but originally it was published in, I think, oh, where was it? 63. Um, I guess just two other publishings, but 63 was when it was originally published. And I think the time period that this was published in is super important to the novel, which mm-hmm. we can talk more about. But um, And it was instantly really popular. I mean, they made a movie in 1965, so only two years after um, it was a number one New York Times bestseller for 34 weeks. It made this author tremendously popular. And it wasn't his first novel. I think it was his third. Um, yeah. And it's kind of an offshoot. He, John Le Carre used to be in the CIA for a very brief period of time. Um, and he kind of talks about in his author's note that some people think he was a spy that then became an author. But he was an author that was a spy for a brief period is kind of more how he looks at it. And, but he wrote a lot about, you know, he's wrote all these spy novels. And so people instantly assume he said incorrectly that this was all true or like happened to him. So it's really interesting. The points he makes about what's true and what's not true as far as details, but overall the tone I think of his novels is really where the truth is as far as when it comes to 
you know, intelligence agencies and our government and things like that. But anyway, so um, it's set during the newly erected Berlin Wall period. Um, It's about the spy Alex Lemus, Alec Lemus. And it begins with him watching as an agent that he's in charge of. His last agent is shot dead by East German sentries as he's trying to cross the wall. Um, So for Lemus, um, the head of the Berlin station where he's stationed, um, the Cold War is over. As he faces the prospect of retirement or worse, a desk job um, control. So kind of like the bosses offer him a unique opportunity for revenge He's going to pretend to be a dissolute ex-agent, and he's set up to trap a um, East German agent named Munt, uh, who's the deputy director of the East German Intelligence Service, and he's kind of the bait for it. Um, it's just, I love it. I think it's a really great read, and I read it in college, like a spy and espionage class we had, oh, which was really cool. Yeah, it was an awesome class, um, and we read this in it, and then I read it a couple times since, and um, I I kind of need to like there's a lot in this novel like it's it's tricky it's a like kind of sophisticated novel like you've got to work a little bit to figure out what's going on there's a lot of implication I think and things that is it this way I I don't think it's quickly I don't think it's an easily figurable out novel and I think it's less about action which I like like Mm -hmm. I really enjoy James Bond but only the movies with uh Daniel Craig I like that iteration of James Bond because it's a little more it's not I mean the the Sean Connery ones are fun they're glamorous but like I kind of like the rougher around the edges like things aren't so great and easy and that's kind of what I really enjoy about this novel is it it's exciting and adventurous without being um appealing as I want to live that way does that make sense I feel like it's not trying to glamorize the lifestyle in any way yeah but you're right like it's pretty incredible that for such a short novel how much is in it Mm -hmm. you know like you really can't skip paragraphs even because no he just is very efficient as an author as far as putting everything in in a way that still flows very nicely but he is utilizing like every ounce of page space that he has. Um, yes. I also thought it was really, really interesting that he did it from like an omniscient writing perspective where you can uh-huh. see what other people are thinking because it's a spy novel. So so it just kind of yeah. seems kind of weird. Usually yeah, it's a, like that's unusual. Be, and yeah, yeah. you mm-hmm. like it's like he's telling you that here's the thoughts of this character and then you can comment on what's going on. You know, here's what you think, but there's still withholding of information. Like it's just, it's a, it really makes you work for it, you know? And then, like I said, we're only doing chapters one through 10, but you definitely see in the last half of the book, like this house of cards that you've built as you've listened Mm -hmm. to these characters, it just kind of slowly starts to like, pick apart a little bit and it looks like it's going to collapse any moment and it's like oh that's like not what I thought I don't know it's a it keeps you um working and but he doesn't do it necessarily with a a lot of there's a lot of information but he's really I think succinct and like conservative in his writing like at one point you know where Alec is in jail it's for three months but we only I think it's like three pages or two and a half pages where that's talked about but you really get the sense of like how tedious and 
awful it was and like kind of what that does to him as a person. Um, I think you really get the sense of it, but he's really conservative with the, the writing. You know, you just, it, he doesn't put more out there than needs to be. Mm-hmm. Like he's just very succinct. Um, but there's a, and so he gets a lot of the story out in a, yeah, a pretty, pretty, sh- at least for us, pretty short novel. Yeah. I mean, 200, 200, 220 20 something pages. pages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I, it's a, I really liked it. I guess so. I'm assuming you liked it too. I didn't really ask you. <laughs> I did like it. It was a definitely, it was definitely a new read for me. I've honestly never really read or been super interested in like the spy genre. Um, mm-hmm. as a book anyway, like I've, I've liked movies and stuff like that, but this is really kind of my first introduction into that genre. And I really, I really loved it. I, I think what I loved about it is that the lines are so blurred. Like I love that it's not really about communism versus capitalism, mm-hmm. even though that that stuff is mentioned, it's more of just blurring the lines of kind of like what government is capable of and well, it and, doesn't and how matter. they justify how, yeah, yeah they justify doing things you know that the the government does something you know they're, they're this democratic government and that we're the good guys and i think it's important too when you think about when it was written i mean mm-hmm. this is not too long after the second world war and um you know people still remember that that's still such a big weight and the collective world and you know I think there was also this real idea of there's good guys and there's bad guys there's this clear line and I think Mm -hmm. that his novel really kind of upends that because are they good guys if they do bad things you know what what makes you a good guy and what what about if you are you good because you're doing something bad but everyone said you know for the good reason it's just yeah there's just so much blur to it and I think he presents that really well in the um, structure of it being this espionage because even that in and of itself it's like spying you know it's right. like that idea and, and how he describes spies like that's part of what attracts me to the Daniel Craig version of James Bond I mean mm-hmm. besides the fact that it's very good looking mm-hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> that that helps um, but you know it's he talks about there's a line he says what do you think spies are priests saints martyrs they're a squalid procession of vain fools traitors too yes pansies sadists and drunkards people who play cowboys and indians to brighten their rotten lives mm-hmm. and that's something that the spy is saying like himself yeah the and self-awareness of that and like what attracts a person to that profession is yes. an interesting one to think about and and i love how early he brings up this these questions like in chapter two when um alec is speaking with control who's basically his boss um Mm -hmm. he's control is talking and he says thus we do disagreeable things but we are defensive that i think is still fair we do disagreeable things so that ordinary people here and elsewhere can sleep safely in their beds at night is that too romantic of course we occasionally do very wicked things he grins like a schoolboy. And in weighing up the moralities, we rather go in for dishonest comparisons. After all, you can't compare the ideals of one side with the methods of the other, can you now? Yeah, it's just, that's an, the control is an interesting character. And I like that it's, he's, he's called control because mm-hmm. it's, it's easier to see him as the representative of the government itself and 
the the bigger picture um which i think you know same with like how the party the communist party is referenced you know when it's talked about it's the party and so i think he he does that very well of really setting the the scene for the whole culture of it of government and espionage and war Mm -hmm. and good versus bad and yeah that's such an icky point of view well and it also you know the the line where he says you can't compare the ideals of one side with the methods of the other can you is Mm -hmm. so hypocritical right because they're fighting this ideal or ideology of communism which is you know sacrificing the needs or wants of this the individual for the greater good quote-unquote right um but then you know they're fighting against that ideal but then in practice that's exactly what they're using like these agents for you know they're willing to sacrifice their own people often for the government for the greater idea and that what is that but if not a direct comparison to the communist ideal of sacrifice. Well, right. And you, you go so far right, you end up left again. And you go mm-hmm. so far left, you end up right again. And I think mm-hmm. that the novel does a great job of, of making that point and doing so in a time where that was probably a pretty upending way to to look at things. Like, it's. Did you ever watch the FX show, The Americans? What yes. about the. Oh my gosh. So I love that show. I love that show. Again, helps that they're very attractive people. But yes, <laughs> um, really, really good. And I think it, it kind of brings that point up too of. You know, and it, it, there's so many examples of that. I mean, the Iran Contra deal. Like, there's just you could just yeah. countless in history, and I think that those things are so important to think about and be aware of and read about. And he puts that whole idea in this novel, but then he also makes it this really fun novel. Like, not not yeah. fun, but like it's it's um, adventurous in a way that's like feels real. Like, there's lots of tension. And it's like, what's going to happen? And you get invested, I think, in the story. Like, I'm invested in Alec, even though he's not like a pleasant character. Like, you still you still look at him almost, I think, as the good guy, because there's this plot going on that's sacrificing him. And, you know, about all these other plots that are sacrificing him. But he doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily know that he's in one, but he's been a part of them. And like, you still just get this sense of you're this cog in this wheel. And I want to see you make it out of it. Right. Like, I, so I think he invests you in this character as well, too. Right. Like, well, it's still very much a spy novel. And the, and yeah, at it the core is, yeah. of it, it's supposed to be entertaining. It's supposed to be something you can read kind of quickly. I mean, it's definitely a bestseller, you know, like. But like, he, reason, I think he, but he's all, it's also sophisticated. I don't think yes, he connects all yeah. the dots. Like, I still there's some things I'm like, wait, what? Like, I had a reread or I was a little confused about. And I think I'm pretty. I can read like mm, I don't know <laughs> mm. like and I like that I like not being treated like I am stupid I like to have to work a little bit at it or at least not have things be super obvious like do your own work to connect the dots like I much I very much appreciate that form of storytelling yeah. sometimes it's an accessible book I think because the sophistication is there but it's also interesting enough that if that's not what you're wanting I think a reader yeah. could could kind of still get that sophistication out of it, maybe on a more subconscious level because it is there. But it's also something where if if you're not actively looking for it, you're still going to really enjoy the book, I think, because it's interesting. Yeah, I think he almost presents it like, OK, there's a lot going on here. 
you're going to have to work at it, but you can like, you can do, you it. Can do this. You yeah. will figure it out. Like, and I think that that's a very nice way to approach things to not dumb it down, but to make it, like you said, assess- accessible. Yeah. And I think, you know, like you said with um, Alec, he is this cog in the wheel and there is a sense of not never quite knowing like where he's going to go and like how much of this act basically that he puts up over time is an act. And you Mm kind of see that in the way that he handles human relationships and stuff, like especially with Liz, like it seems like it's he is veering off of the track that he's supposed to go on sometimes but then he always he just kind of comes back and I love the idea of like the cold and the cold being a state of mind and like a place in society as well as a place in like a government position yeah you're you're not just coming in from being a double agent you're coming in like almost out of the cold back to humanity like back to that and I think that he does that so well with uh, uh, maybe I can't talk about this part yet because it's more in part two, like with how it ends. But he does a really good mm-hmm. job, I think, of of showing that there's layers to this idea of a spy coming in from the cold. Yeah. And it's a really beautiful way that it, it is described. It's on the same page, actually, of the same the, of the quote that I read before. Um, right. It's on Controls page talking. 50, yeah. It's control talking. It's in chapter two. And he says, We have to live without sympathy, don't we? That's impossible, of course. We act it to one another, all this hardness, but we aren't like that, really. I mean, one can't be in the cold all the time. One has to come in from the cold. Do you see what I mean? And that's such an interesting point of view coming from control because Mm -hmm. you'd usually you'd think that like a conversation sitting down with, you know, the person who is in charge of what you do you know, and it's not a good job, really. But like even them admitting like this is kind of an act anyway, like you still have to be a part of society. You can't just like lose yourself. But at the same time, they don't make that really an option for him Mm -hmm. either. You know, as he gets closer to Liz, um, you know, he asks them not to involve her, not to bring her in at all and you know we'll see how that works out but right it's it's weird that he's saying like you can't be in the cold all the time but as soon as you come in like we're gonna we come out from the cold you're really gonna bring you right back in and yeah it's like you can't it escape it yeah 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 and it's a it's a hard thing to see you know because I think like I said you kind of become attached to the character and you get the idea that he thinks what he's doing is is for good but like he's 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 got like a real world cynicism to him like I really love the dialogue like I love when he um I think it's I think it's in chapter two or three no I don't know he's going with that chapter six that's where he gets out of prison and then um Ash the other agent like Mm-hmm. makes contact with him and I just loved reading that that was such a fun part where it's like he leaves the parcel on the bench and mm-hmm. kind of like you see how his mind works but he's and as he's responding to how Ash is talking to him almost pointing out like oh yep I see what he's doing here here's what he's doing now here's when I'm going to respond to it like he's really clever but is still like cynical about things and I think he's just a great character to follow along with and you want him to come in from the cold like you want him to I I felt at least that I wanted him to be successful in this mission not necessarily in just 
the mission, but in being able to come in from the cold, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, let go and, and have a relationship and not be this kind of person anymore. Um, so like you want that success for him or at least I do. I did too, for sure. There's a lot of like self isolation that I think goes on here. And it's just kind of sad. Um, when it's describing the way that he kind of, um, sets himself up to appear as this like disgruntled former agent. Um, he talks about it being like a process. Um, and the process of going to seed is generally considered to be a protracted one. But in Lemus, this was not the case. In the full view of his colleagues, he was transformed from a man honorably put aside to a resentful, drunken wreck, and all within a few months. There is a kind of stupidity among drunks, particularly when they are sober, a kind of disconnection which the unobservant interpret as vagueness and which Lemus seems to acquire with unnatural speed. He developed small dishonesties borrowed insignificant sums from secretaries and neglected to return them, arrived late or left early under some mumbled pretext. At first, his colleagues treated him with indulgence. Perhaps his decline scared them in the ways, in the way, same way as we are scared by cripples, beggars, and invalids because we fear we could become them ourselves. But in the end, his neglect, his brutal, unreason- unreasoning malice isolated him. And just like the idea that he not only has to isolate himself from personal relationships outside of work, he's being forced to mm-hmm. isolate himself from the working relationships that he could possibly have. It's it's just such a, I don't know, it, it would be hard to imagine being forced to go through that and do that to yourself. Because even if it is fake and you are doing it on purpose, a certain level of that is absolutely real and he is still dealing with that isolation and it's it's sad to read. Well, and I really, I think that Jean Lacar does it, especially with, like I said, the time period that it's set in and World War II being so present still and the Cold War and, you know, the idea of of war and what that does to people and then when they're no longer in service, how they Mm -hmm. are and how they're treated. You know, um, he starts chapter eight, Les Mirages, it says... It was cold that morning. The light mist was damp and gray, prickling the skin. The airport reminded Lemus of the war. Machines, half hidden in the fog, waiting patiently for their masters. The resonant voices and their echoes, the sudden shout and the incongruous clip of a girl's heel on a stone floor. The roar of an engine that might have been at your elbow. Everywhere that air of conspiracy which generates among people who have been up since dawn of superiority almost. Derived from the common experience of having seen the night disappear and the morning come. Mm-hmm. The staff had that look which is informed by the mystery of dawn and animated by the cold, and they treated the passengers and their baggage with the remoteness of men returned from uh, returned from the front. Ordinary mortals that hadn't ordinary mortals had nothing for them that morning. Mm-hmm. And I think he makes this interesting point about like, you know, he talks about him being a veteran and different people that were in the war and kind of how that affects them later. And then him as the spy and how he him he's putting on a front but pretending to be kind of let go from the service and how he responds to that i mean and there's such a mm-hmm. disservice we do to veterans in this country yeah i don't know enough about other countries to speak intelligently enough about it but i know there's a huge disservice to how we treat our veterans and like the side effects of 
war that are mental as well. And I think he makes this interesting point of like, you almost get stuck in this loop and there's people who have experienced it and haven't. And Mm -hmm. it's, it doesn't go away. It just is presented in these ways that we don't want to look at. And I think that he shines a light on a lot of those things. He shines a lot on the hypocrisy of governments and, you know, people who say they're democratic and he shines a light, I think on how we treat people in the service. And he, he just, pokes little lights in all of these little dark holes and he doesn't make this expose out of it but I think he gives you things to think about in that way for sure I mean I think it was a really smart way um one thing that I think he does is really smart is just with the character uh oh was it Munt is that how you say it Munt Munt um well I mean he's an ex-Nazi that was allowed in the British service mm -hmm you know, afterwards. And I think, oh, I can't remember. It has to be like maybe the first chapter or maybe even just the, the introduction from the author where he says that that was really common. Like, oh yeah. Well, we, Nazis are no strangers to our democratic government. And as we we took so many of them as scientists to after the fact, like it's just insane how quickly that's excused. So maybe like as soon as the government's goals changed, they were more Mm -hmm. inclined to to set aside that morality in that moment and that's a hard thing to grapple with and I think that's something that people really struggle with now to grapple with because we see that and not in the sense that they're so explicitly Nazis in the sense that they were like in Germany in 1940 but those ideals that we know that so many people in the government still do have but so many people are willing to just set it aside because at that moment yeah. it serves their interests. Yeah, he talks about it in his author's note. He says, former Nazis with attractive qualifications weren't just tolerated by the Allies. They were positively mollycoddled for their anti-communist credentials. Who was America's first choice to head West Germany's embryonic intelligence service? General Reinhard Gellin, former chief of Hitler's foreign armies east, the Russian theater, where he had made himself a corner in the Soviet order of battle. Anticipating Germany's defeat, the general had assembled his files and his people, and at the first opportunity had turned them over to the Americans who accepted them with open arms. Recruited, Gellin tactfully dropped the general and became air doctor instead. Hmm. And they gave him, it says, and the country estate that they ended up giving air doctor was... um, was what was uh, Hitler's eagle's nest like so they they just it's just so interesting and there's so many more stories of that that's just one he put in the author's note but he does make this really good point of I mean and I guess we'll talk more about that in the second part of yeah. the novel but kind of just the intermixing of ideologies and people and what's tactics are good it's like almost anything goes yeah. it's almost like the wild wild west a little bit in just a different format well, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like if you strip away the ideals or the flags behind them, can you really mm-hmm. tell a difference between the right. sides? Because you can't. You can't. One is not behaving really any more morally than the next. Um, and it's it's interesting to read about. And I think it, it's a pretty big deal to be writing about stuff like that in 1963 when it's such an age of, like, paranoia. Mm-hmm. And especially around communism and, it, you know, I, I don't know exactly how crazy things got in the UK, but thinking of it from like an American standpoint of just how much red panic there really was 
and how people were like spying on their own neighbors and calling the FBI on their neighbors because Mm -hmm. they said something a little too like liberal for them or something, you know, like it's just so weird to think about just the whole McCarthy era. Yeah. Which I mean, again, this is an English novel, but they're very, I mean, those two countries are extremely related as far as, yeah, it's an English novel, but it's, I mean, you can just transport any of like, when I think of it, I think of the CIA. I mean, it's like all, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's easily trans transferable. Um, I do love how he talks about, it's just in the very first chapter, how he kind of addresses the Americans though, (laughs) like where he's Mm -hmm. at the checkpoint. So, um, it's, it's funny. There's almost a little bit of a disdain. I think I get the sense from how Lemus is treating the American agents that are there. Um, so I think it was an interesting, I don't know, just, I, I think we like to look at ourselves as the world's policemen. I mean, that's yep. been part of a slow go. And so it's, I don't think Britain's much better, but it's just interesting to hear their <laughs> outlook, you know, just the disdain all these intelligence communities have for each other. And it's like, you're all doing the same weird shitty work right well and and it's funny like seeing a uk perspective on that because it's like where do you think we got this from like where we learned this yeah we're we're basically cousins like we learned it from you guys i think he does a really good job of not glamorizing the the world um but Mm -hmm. not make but still making it like we said it's it was a really popular novel it's a good read it's exciting like yeah you know i'm excited to see what they do with it with the movie how they take it and what kind of the tone is so that'll be really interesting to watch and talk about next time so um yeah we'll be starting so we've kind of we'll be starting where he's now heading over well we start with liz's point of view in chapter Mm -hmm. 11 and i love that she gets brought into it more um and then we get to where he's taken to east germany and everything that happens now that his plan is in place he has successfully appeared to have defected um, mm-hmm. from the British service and become a defector and an informant. And so it's, uh, be interesting to see kind of how the plan all turns out. I agree. Or does not turn out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, good. I'm, yeah, I think this was a fun one and I'm excited to read the movie. So we'll be talking about chapters, uh, starting chapter 11 and the movie next time. So hopefully you get a chance to catch up with us in the book or at least read the movie, read the movie. <laughs> Watch the movie. Oh God, <laughs> too much, too much lambic beer. <laughs> Was there anything I missed or that you wanted to bring up before we closed up? Um, I don't think so. But well, I guess I wanted to bring up just one part, um, in the book. It's I think it's chapter eight, but it's it's basically when he's getting like interrogated by Peters. Mm-hmm. Um. And this is just a, a part that I really loved because this is where I think that the writer's POV is really useful for, mm. with, but without giving anything away, if yeah. that makes sense. So this mm-hmm. part, um, I think there's a lot of it really interesting questions about like loyalty and betrayal, which I think. Come, yeah, this come is where he starts more. talking about why, like, yeah. why do you, what's your belief? What is the belief of your people? Yeah, this yeah. is a great thing to talk about. I had totally forgotten about this. And I loved the part where it, it switches between he's asking Lima's questions and then it hurries and switches to, to Peter's point of view. And it says Peter's watched him coolly, appraising him like a professional gambler across the table. What was Lima's worth? What would break him? What attract or frightened him? What did he hate above all? What did he know? Would he keep his best card to the end and sell it dear? 
Peters didn't think so. Lemus was too much off balance to monkey about. He was a man at odds with himself, a man who knew one life, one confession, and had betrayed them. Peters had seen it before. He had seen it even in men who had undergone a complete ideological rehearsal, who in the secret hours of the night had found a new creed and alone, compelled by the internal power of their convictions, had betrayed their calling, their families, their countries. Even they, filled as they were with new zeal and new hope, had had to struggle against the stigma of treachery. Even they wrestled with the almost physical anguish of saying that which they had been trained never, never to reveal. Like apostates who feared to burn the cross, they hesitated between the instinctive and the material, and Peters, caught in the same polarity, must give them comfort and destroy their pride. But I just yeah, love that's this. that's a great section. It's awesome, and I, I love that switch of the POV. Like, it doesn't reveal anything. We still don't really know, like, mm-hmm. what Peters is about, other than the fact that he works for the Communist Party, but... It's such like an interesting question of like what breaks these people and then also like yeah. how much does this like almost overwhelming sense of loyalty lie and like what is the ultimate thing that makes someone switch over or like feel like they can do it and this odd sense of like having to comfort the person into doing it. Um, it's just an interesting well, I question. Think it's, it's interesting to think about these like interrogation tactics, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation, but like that idea of, you know, it, if you continue on that passage that you read, it talks about how Peter's, this is what he, he knows that because of all of this, you know, Alec is going to lie, lie by omission. And so he has to like continue talking to him and, or other people do, you can see this with fielding, like to fielders to get mm-hmm. information from him. It's from talking and establishing relationships, not necessarily a trustful one, but by that communication. And so there's this great dialogue. It's not even about torture, you know, mm-hmm. and there's scenes where there's torture in the book, but not as a way to extract information. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an interesting to bring that up that this is, this is how you get information out of people, or this is how you learn things, not from waterboarding them or torturing which we all know doesn't produce results there's been countless studies on that anyway but how it's how even stuff like that is justified of well I had to get the information and so I just think it's nice to kind of put this point of view in here it's not from the torture because it's far more interesting to read for one thing Mm -hmm. I'd much rather read this dialogue of back and forth and like you know almost a tennis game of wits especially when there's this added element of he's pretending to be something else but still Mm -hmm. has to play this game like how that would be such a mind boggle yeah well and it's I just think this this section does such a good job of showing how much of it is a battle of wits and how Lemus just needs to convince him and how kind of good he is at doing that and Mm -hmm. um like he's just he's smart he's he's rugged and and everything but he's good at this and this is a part where you kind of see that he is good at this even with Peter's you know trying to figure out how to break him or how to truly crack him he still like seems to think that it's possible you know and believes this kind of image that Lemus is showing him and it's just such a fun like battle of wits especially at a time of like weapons of mass destruction but like this is right. the stuff that it's actually it boils down to two people yeah. talking in a yes. room yes. and like having to like talk and not say things and it's what they're not saying that's important yeah it's just mm-hmm. so much more interesting to yeah much prefer this kind of these kind of novels about wars like yeah. i don't really 
necessarily enjoy uh, a lot of movies or novels that are war because it I think the focus a lot becomes on the which is important to know about but just the the violence and the destruction in that way and there's so much more riding on these people who aren't necessarily exchanging weapon fire but they're right. controlling so many other you know for everything from control literally they're controlling you know all these people's lives from their just little games that they play yeah um so then just two people having a conversation in a room and how that's going to affect the broader picture that's more interesting to me not related to this but like that's why i think game of thrones was so successful especially in the early seasons is like there was Mm. less focus on like later in the seasons that in the series that changed but like the episodes where there was less focus on action and more two people talking in a room yeah it made it it was so much more interesting and compelling i think and i think that's what made that show great so seeing this happen and like this book where it's is showing a very similar game um mm-hmm. I, th- I just think it's it's fascinating and i think it it, it certainly makes me feel like those in individual interactions and like who we put in places of power it really matters not just because they have that power but because like the way that they handle and think about things like one person can really make a pretty big impact just by one conversation and it's important to pay attention yeah by their conversation and and by their motivations i Mm -hmm. mean the death of mr donald rumsfeld lately brought that up again you know just his Mm -hmm. own machinations and how that affected (laughs) one of the longest like the longest war ever and yeah i think it's interesting to think about these people that you don't necessarily see on the front line but how much they're they're puppeteering plays a role in in our history and it's it's important to recognize that so yeah it was good and i i want to read more jean le car like i said this is the only novel i had read of his and i don't know why because i really liked it i just never went back and read more and i definitely love books that do that so i'm excited to talk about part two and pick up some more jean le car i feel like this would be a good airplane read yeah i i read it on the airplane so i can attest to that yeah it was a good airplane read (laughs) it was a great airplane read i felt like a really interesting stranger at an airport you know like you know sipping my martini at the restaurant bar reading a spy novel yeah that is a good picture that's a good look yeah Yeah. (laughs) that's yeah you fancy that's nice That's nice. I'm going to, yeah, I'm definitely going to, I'm going to pick one up for the next plane ride I have, which will be out to see you. So good. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to talking about part two. So hopefully you guys all get a chance to catch up with us if you haven't already read it and we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.